Luke 23, verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. These are words that Christ and his glory and grace and holiness and righteousness and supreme authority spoke even as he was dying. And Lord, how we pray that these words indeed would be precious to us and that you would bless them, that we would see what we have not seen before and that you would use these as means of grace that we might be as that thief on the cross brought to salvation, brought to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. So we're really in the heart of things now. It's Christ is already on the cross here in Luke chapter 23. We come... In these verses, verses 39 to 43, the story of the thief on the cross. I probably mentioned in a previous occasion that in today's parlance, this man might better have been regarded as a terrorist. He was certainly engaged in an armed insurrection, and he was guilty of murder. But generations of God's people have called him the penitent thief, and we will stick with that. There's nothing wrong with that. He was a thief as well as a murderer. And his story is one of the most remarkable stories of salvation in all of Scripture. People love hearing about great disasters and how maybe even just one person was saved in the most amazing kind of circumstances, amazing kind of chain of events that brought that. We think, yes, of Noah and the ark. It reminds us out of the whole world, only Noah and his his family were saved. An amazing thing. Glory, give glory to God in such a salvation. Well, the thief on the cross is absolutely as good as it gets. And of course, it's not only his story. It's also the story of his comrade, the other thief, the one on the opposite side. You remember that Jesus was in the middle in the cross reserved for the ringleader Barabbas of this insurrection, of this terrorist cell, and on one, one of the other murderers on one hand and the other on the other. And as we know, he did not repent. And rather, he spent his last very precious moments doing what? Blaspheming the Lord Jesus Christ, along with the chief priests and Pharisees and all the rest of them. Join in their jeering and blasphemy. Friends, so we have one thief who carries on in the very worst of sin, not merely ignoring the Lord Jesus Christ, which is bad enough, but of absolutely blaspheming him and mocking him. 
And on the other hand, we have a thief who repents of his sin, rebukes the other thief, and puts his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom, because I know you have one. How can we possibly understand what would make the difference between these two nearly identical men in utterly identical circumstances coming to completely polar opposite responses? Well, what makes them to differ? The answer is nothing in themselves. Nothing. You can't say one of those thieves were somehow better, less of a murderer than the other one. They were both murderers. And you can't say that somehow the circumstances were one were more favorable to bring him to faith than the other because their circumstances were utterly identical. They were both nailed to crosses about to die. There's nothing that makes them to differ. That's the point. Because salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is not of works, lest anyone should boast. It is the work of God. And we see that perhaps more clearly here with the thief on the cross than anywhere else in Scripture. It's my prayer that we understand that much. It is the work of God. And friends, beyond that, it is the story of Christ himself. The one who was willing to endure, yes, not only such torture, but such opposition by sinners as on the one hand, this unrepentant thief, and then of granting such pardon. Not only pardon, but even assurance of salvation to say to the other, and today you will be with me in paradise. Five minutes ago, he was blaspheming along with the other. And all he has to do is to repent and believe and say, remember me, Lord Jesus. And he says, I will. Today you will be with me in paradise. Friends, that is the glorious gospel that we preach. Well, the title very simply is The Thief on the Cross. With these four points. The blasphemy of unbelief. Two, the thief's repentance. Three, the thief's faith. Four, the thief's assurance. Or briefly, unbelief, repentance, faith, and assurance. First of all, the blasphemy of unbelief. We read in verse 39, Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. And just to give you the larger picture of what's going on, we have that for us in Matthew 27. Likewise, the chief priest also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said he saved others himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him, for he said, I am the son of God. And then in verse 44 it says this, Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. So it was a taunt that these wicked leaders of the people had begun, If you're the Christ, save yourself. And it was taken up by both of these thieves on either side. If you're the, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. It may have been even some sort of taunting, mocking chant. Well, this text very clearly identifies this, describes this as being blasphemy. How so? 
Because, of course, he doesn't really believe that Jesus is the Christ. He doesn't believe that he is the Son of God. And he doesn't really believe that he could save himself or any of them. And rather, he called, he, this is a taunt. And this is blasphemy. Now, Christ does not answer him. Because such things, as we find throughout the Gospels, are never answered with compliance. Sometimes they're answered with a rebuke. And in this case, the rebuke of, it would soon enough come, but from the other criminal, the other terrorists. But more often they're answered with silence. Why, friends? Because Christ will have more than enough to say when he is seated as judge on judgment day. And not everything that he's ever going to say to a mocking sinner, he says now. He has some words yet to say to them on judgment day. But in point of fact... If we want to think about the content now of these mocking words, these blasphemous words, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us, let me just remind us that he couldn't do actually both of those things. He could only do one or the other. He was the Christ, and because he was the Christ, because he was the Messiah, he could only do one of the two things, save himself or save them. Couldn't do both. This is the holiness of God. Perfect, strict justice that requires a payment for sin, requires judgment for sin. The wages of sin are death. And also amazing grace that he wishes to save. He wishes to save. Indeed, one who knew and believed God's word would understand Isaiah 53, would have believed John's word that this was the Lamb of God who was going to be slain for the sins of his people, would believe Jesus' own prophecies concerning himself that he was going to die, he was going to lay down his life in atoning sacrifice for his people, and would understand that he could not both save himself and others. No, he must die. He must lay down his life in order to save others. Now, this blasphemy, returning to what this this unrepentant thief had, had said, this blasphemy is absolute proof of unbelief. And let me say that unbelief itself is a kind of blasphemy. Because the creator of this universe, the one whom you owe obedience and honor and worship has spoken. He has given a word. He has revealed his word to mankind. And you say it's not true. He has said, I have sent my son. I have installed him on my own holy hill, it says in Psalms. And yet, you say, I don't believe that he can save. And this gospel which you preach, I don't believe it. Friends, that is indeed a form of blasphemy itself. This is the, the blasphemy of unbelief. But that's, of course, not the main part of the story. That is the background And we move on now to the second point, which is the thief's repentance. That was one thief, the unrepentant, unpenitent thief. But now we have a thief who is penitent. And in verse 40 it says, The other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? Now this is a change. Because at first they were both speaking derisively and blasphemously uh, to Christ, as it says very clearly in the Matthew passage. Both of them, the robbers, plural, were speaking in this way. And now he changes. He changes. 
And he ends up rebuking the other thief. Now, friends, the thief's rebuke to his, his fellow thief is, is evidence of his repentance. Because penitent people, those who are, have come through the grace of God to repent of their sins, are able, perhaps for the first time, to see sin. To see in all their grotesque colors the sinfulness of sin in themselves and in others. And the things that five minutes ago they might have done with joy and gladness. And now they see as repulsive. That's what penitence looks like. That's what repentance looks like. And to add to that, he is willing to risk Yes, adding to his misery at this point as if it were not enough. The opposition and the rejection of his friend who otherwise might have offered some degree of comfort in that at least they were dying together as comrades in arms in their, their wrong-headed endeavor of rebellion against the Roman government. But no, he, like Moses, chooses, if even for a moment, to suffer affliction with the people of God. He's identified himself with the people of God, identified himself with Christ, and therefore is willing to suffer that rejection as he rebukes this other man for his blasphemy. And mainly, that's evidence enough of repentance right there, but mainly he acknowledges the justice of his death sentence. He says in verse 41, And we indeed justly suffer this condemnation, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. The due reward of our deeds. Beloved, do you understand just how few ever come to those words? Even those who have been convicted and are spending time in prison are far, far more likely to blame their victims in some way, blame the courts, blame the system, blame their parents. But they just never get around to saying, indeed, this is just what I'm suffering here. I'm receiving the due reward of my deeds. This man did, because this is what repentance looks like. He was repentant. Let me ask you this. When I declare that you and all others who die in their sins, having not repented, having not put your faith in Christ, will certainly suffer the eternal wrath of God in hell, what is your response to that? What is your response to that? For some, that's dreadful. God would never send anyone to hell. For others, yes, That's the due reward of our deeds. And I, like everyone else, if you were to ask me what I truly deserve, it is indeed eternal judgment in hell, because that's what God declares. And we justify God in saying, I agree with that sentence. Well, that's the thief's repentance. It's as clear as day. Thirdly, we consider the thief's faith. Now, just as a, a background to this, we understand that We're not saved by repentance. We're saved by faith, but faith is always accompanied by repentance. The two things come together, and I always say they're like two sides of a single coin. You can't have a one-sided coin. There's always the other side. And there's both the the head and and the tail, the obverse and reverse of every coin. And so if you think about a coin being faced this way to sin and being turned to Christ, at the same time they're turning their back 
on their former life, turning their back on sin. And so there's always repentance and always faith in Christ. And in verse 41, we see evidence now of this faith as well as repentance, because he says, although we are condemned, rightly so, but this man has done nothing wrong, nothing wrong. He is proclaiming the innocence and righteousness of Christ. Now, you might say, well, so did Pilate. Actually, he did more than once proclaim the innocence, but he wouldn't say. But let me, he adds to that, okay? Not just a mere intellectual knowledge that Christ is perfectly innocent, which is utterly true and part of any genuine faith, that he was the sinless one, the only sinless one ever to, to walk the face of the earth. He calls him Lord. Was him Lord. A few minutes ago, he was saying, "If you are the Christ," now he says, "Lord, Prince." You understand? This is this is all the gospel is. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. That's exactly what he's doing, Lord. And then he says, "Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom." It's not just a head knowledge that in theory I know that Christ is a sinless one. Or in theory I know that he is the Lord. He is, he is stepping out in faith, in trust, embracing Christ as his Lord and as his Savior. And saying, remember me when you come into him. And what that means is that he believes that Christ has a kingdom. And that he's soon enough to come into it and he will have authority to save in that kingdom. Authority to receive people or not. And beloved, what does it take to believe that a condemned man, already in the process of dying, was yet going to come into a kingdom? Right? You understand what Christ looked like at this point. Beaten, stripped, And they're hanging on the cross about to die. What kind of faith does it take to look at that one and say, he's a king and he's soon going to come into his kingdom. And my only request is that he remember me when he does. Friends, what kind of faith? It has nothing to do with sight. Nothing that his eyes were telling him gave him any information, but utterly the contrary along those lines. But he has faith and it is supernatural. It is God-given faith. When we look at all this, we see as clearly as, as day that this is the work of the Holy Spirit to grant him such faith. Open his eyes spiritually to see something that no one could otherwise see. Supreme, supernatural, God-given faith. And this is faith in the gospel. Now, this man had heard the gospel message in a slightly different way than maybe we present as we have taught one another to evangelize. We've given a gospel presentation. It maybe sounds a little bit different, but I hope you understand that in essence it is precisely the same that we've heard. And maybe the main text for the sermon that he heard was a note on the cross. This is the king of the Jews. And it was true. The Christ that was proclaimed and was lifted up was actually physically lifted up before him on that cross. But he believed what was preached to him. That Christ was Lord, that he is able to save, and he believed it. And he entrusts himself to Christ. He, 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 he distanced himself 
from his former life, indeed, of seeking to be his own savior. He and the other thief and, and Barabbas and all of them were seeking to free themselves of the Roman government and to set themselves up their own kingdom. And he turns his back on all that. And he turns to Christ and say, says, remember me. You come. Not make me, by the way, to sit on your right hand. Sometimes his own disciples. But just remember me. Well, that's faith, friends. That's what it looks like. A thief's faith. And fourthly and finally, we see the thief's assurance. In verse 43, Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, I don't know what to say to add to that statement, but what a statement. How welcome those words must have been to him. And he was there in agony and he'd soon enough be dead. But he was going to die with the most certain knowledge that he was going to go straight to heaven. The most perfect and certain knowledge. In fact, Jesus says, with me. He doesn't say in a kind of impersonal term, yes, I grant that you'll be in some paradise. Third one down. He says, no, you're going to be with me in paradise. The same place that I'm going, that's where you're going to. What I have, I bestow upon you. All that the Father is going to give to me, and we don't have any clue as to how glorious and how wonderful that's going to be. But you just have to wonder if, if, eternal, if Almighty God sets his, his, all of his forces and all of his creative power and his wisdom to, to bestow the most beautiful kingdom imaginable upon his son whom he wishes to bestow the greatest honor. He says, that's where you're going to be with me. And that Jesus would be willing to keep such company. This murderer. He says, you get to be with me. To share his glory. To share his blessing in all of eternity. But friends, this is why he came to save. Because he's not going to end up as he is there a filthy sinner. Because there's, another, there's some other words that Jesus is yet going to say. Because as he is dying, he is paying for the, the sins of that man and with all the others who would ever believe. And in fact, by the time that he was done, he was going to say, it is finished. And by the time he is done, he has cleansed that man's robes and he has made him fit to be with him in heaven. And it will be his delight to have such a one in all of eternity. Now, let me ask you this. Was Jesus actually authorized to say those words, to give such assurance of pardon? That's really important because sometimes people make little promises to us that they're not really authorized to say. We make promises maybe with regard or implicit promises with jobs and we don't actually have that authority or other sorts of things that we might have an end, but we don't really, in the end, we don't have the power to grant these things in, in their totality. And there's a little bit of fear then that comes, maybe yet will be rejected. Well, let me say, in John 5, Jesus does have this authority. John 5:21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Do you understand? 
As the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. How about that? Whoever he wants to, he just gives life to. And in this, the Father has committed all judgment into the Son. Now, I sometimes, I don't know if fellow parents, if this is ever a thing, but I sometimes try to assure my children that I'm the one who decides whether they've done well or not. Their job is simply to honor me, and, and I will uh, either assign to them uh, blame for not having done well or ounce uh, praise for having done well as they, they seek to honor me, and not actually their teachers, because they are in loci parentis. They, they are serving on my behalf, and they assign things on my behalf, and they, they do things on my behalf, but ultimately God has given them only one master, as it were, their parents, and it's right for them to honor them. But it's hard, because then they get marks, and, and the, the marks, are there's, there, it leads appears to them sometimes that there's a distance between those two things. But friends, I want you to understand that Jesus marks every exam. All right? He doesn't even delegate that to anyone else. He marks every exam himself. He himself is the admissions officer for every college, every university. He is the one who decides for every job spiritually. Not only, you know what, actually in terms of his authority that extends to all the earth, even in these physical things. But what I'm talking about is spiritual. What I'm saying is that God has made him to be the judge. And the one you're going to meet one day, in death or when he returns, who, gets, who makes the admissions decisions, whether you get in or whether you don't, it's him. All right. So the same one who is the Savior, the same one who has died, the same one who is now your friend and the one that you know and you're, you're hoping he has authority to let you in, you're going to see that he's also the judge. He marks every exam himself. He has that authority. And we know, therefore, that there's no fear for those whom he has said, today you will be with me in paradise. How welcome his words of the thief must have been to him. And how welcome those words to the thief are to us. Because, beloved, that means that the very worst sinner is fully eligible for salvation. There's no one beyond it. And it helps us to see more clearly than any other place the nature of the gospel. It is not the good, it is not the worthy, it is not the whatever that get in to heaven. It is those who repent and believe. It's as simple as that. And no one is beyond the extent of salvation. Well, those were the four points, but I now have four applications, briefly. First of all, the thief is reason to rejoice. Okay, Because... The greatest sinner can be saved, has been saved, and shall be saved. No one's beyond the pale. No one is too bad. It's not like that. Because you understand that the greatest, one of the greatest sinners died with full assurance of pardon and salvation. And that means that we all can do the same. He is a trophy, a monument to God's grace. It brings glory to God in, in saving such a one. Because Jesus is going to be showing off all of his trophies in eternity and points to this one. Look at this one. He was a, he was a, he was a terrorist. And I saved him on his, the very day he was dying. 
There's going to be some other trophies, maybe some in this room. Terrible sinners. Deserve nothing but the condemnation of God. The Lord delights in saving even such as us. I wonder if it would be an encouragement for us to hear personally such words from the Lord, to say, today you will be with me in paradise. I would say on the authority of the word of God, if your repentance and faith are the same in content as this, this thief, meaning if you're willing to turn away from, the, from lawlessness and, and to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and to say, remember me when you come into your kingdom, well, on that, the authority of the word of God, I say his response to you is the same because he's not going to, he doesn't turn anyone away who comes to him in faith. He says, you will be with me in paradise. You will be with me in paradise. And that's a great reason to rejoice. Secondly, the thief is no reason to wait. It's a reason to rejoice because there's hope for everyone, but he's no reason to wait. Some have said, well, I'll just wait until I'm like that, until I'm, I'm about to die, and then I'll believe. And that would be a great mistake. Terrible misuse of this story, if that were the case. Because the situation here is an extreme situation. We have no sense that this man has previously come uh, to any understanding whatsoever of the Lord Jesus, that he'd really heard the gospel before. When he heard it, he believed it. He was given that, that faith by the Lord. But there's no sense that he had decided beforehand to put off his faith until he was about to die. And somehow I suspect that the Lord is not going to honor such plans in people. Today is the day of salvation. If you've heard the gospel, you should believe it now. And let me say as well that his kind of situation is by no means the ordinary one. Imagine that he still had all, he was, he was dying, yes, but he had all the use of his faculties. That doesn't always happen. And beyond it, he had the greatest, the most perfect evangelist next to him, the Lord Jesus Christ, all along throughout this process. And that scenario does not often happen. We should certainly not presume upon it, but rather believe now the gospel that is proclaimed now. Thirdly, I want to point out that the cross is a soul sorter. It sorts people one way or another. The effect of the cross is to sort men eternally one way, either as an instrument of judgment or the instrument of salvation, because that's its effect on people. Matthew Henry says that Christ was crucified between two thieves And in them were represented the different effects which the cross of Christ would have upon the children of men to whom it would be brought near in the preaching of the gospel. They were all malefactors, all guilty before God. The cross of Christ has become to some a savor of life unto life and the others of death unto death. To some you encounter the cross in its foolishness and you reject Christ. And the others you encounter the cross... And it's the wisdom of God and the power of God to salvation. Friends, that's the effect the cross has. It divides all of mankind to those who, who receive it as wisdom and those who reject it as foolishness. Now, I would say beyond that, that's dividing all mankind, believer, unbeliever. But I would say that the thief on the cross is also, the thief on the cross, beyond the cross itself, is also something of a sorter. Because what's your response to that? Not what's your response to the cross, but what is your response to the idea that the thief on the cross was saved? 
Do you say, well, I'm just like that thief. I rejoice in that. Or do you say, hold on now. Here's this, here's this man who lived his life in such a way, and yet all he has to do in the end is repent and believe, and he gets the same reward that I have, who've been slaving away in obedience to the Lord all my life. Well, so the Lord has a word for you. It's from Matthew 20, verse 9, and here it is. When those who were hired about the 11th hour, they each received a denarius, the same reward. The 11th hour, meaning the very end of the day. All they worked was one hour. And when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more because they'd been working all day. And they likewise received each a denarius. And when they'd received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. And he answered one of them and said, Friend, am I, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as you. That is the gospel. As those who have been living as obedient as possible, no one's perfect. But as obedient as possible, all their lives are no more worthy of salvation than that thief on the cross. Nothing that you do in this world merits you heaven. We have to understand that. Fourthly and finally, the sovereign grace of God that we see should bring us to worship him. Okay? We see the sovereignty of God in these two men, these two thieves, these two terrorists. His sovereign grace to save whom he wants to save. As it says in Romans 9, For he says to, Mer- to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but God who shows mercy. Friends, this is our God. He is no bureaucratic functionary whom we endure for a while, and then, and then we call their boss and get it overruled because they're just a bureaucratic functionary. This is Almighty God. He determines whom he will save and whom he passes over. There's nothing else to decide. There's nothing else between them. You can't say, well, one of these men was a little bit more intelligent. One of these men was a little bit better. No, no, that's not the story at all. They're both murderers. And five minutes ago, they were both blaspheming. The difference is in God, not in man. And what do we do with such a God? We worship him. We worship him. That's the end of the thing that is said in Ephesians, which deals with the same subject. Ephesians 1. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. To what? To what end? To the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. It is to the glory of God to do such. And we praise him in it. We love, we embrace, we glory in the sovereign grace of the triune God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, truly we delight in this most amazing story, one of the, perhaps the most, the, the starkest depiction imaginable 
of the sovereign grace of God, the power of the gospel, yes, to save even the very worst, even in the, on the 11th hour, as this man lay dying, yet he died with full assurance that he would be with Christ that day in paradise. And Lord, such assurance is available to any who likewise turn their back on a life of lawlessness and rebellion and turn to faith in Christ and asking that only that you would remember us. And Lord, we know that there is no one who comes to Christ whom you will turn away because you have committed all judgment to Christ and he delights to save repentant sinners. Lord, we know that the only difference between these two men is that which you wrought in sending the Holy Spirit to bring one of them to faith, to bring one of them to repentance and not the other. Lord, we do not kick against these things. We do not rebel. We do not blaspheme. But rather, Lord, we submit and we glorify and justify you in all your deeds because they are perfectly righteous. And we are thankful, Lord, that such authority has been handed to the Lord Jesus, that he saves whomever he wants to, and that all who come to him in faith shall be saved. We pray, Lord, we would glory and delight in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.